Welcome back. This is Robert Fleming from the Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Estate Planning Special Needs Trust Administration Law Firm of Fleming & Curdy PLC. I'm here with my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and we're going to talk about professional fiduciaries and fiduciaries hiring professionals for a few minutes. So in previous sessions, we've talked about what a fiduciary is, that it's serious work, that it's kind of hard to be a fiduciary, and therefore it's important to be careful in your selection of fiduciaries. Uh, one of the choices is to hire a professional fiduciary, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But Elizabeth, I'd like to talk first about if your family members are going to act as fiduciary. Uh, one question is, are they going to charge to act as fiduciary? That's a great question, Robert. And the law in Arizona absolutely allows a family member to charge a fee as a fiduciary, whether or not that family member is acting as an agent under a healthcare power of attorney, whether or not the family member is acting as a personal representative or perhaps a trustee. Oftentimes, you'll notice that the documents will refer to compensation and they don't exclude family members from charging compensation. So the first thing I would say is absolutely yes, you can have a family member who does charge a fee. Sometimes we see family members say, you know, I, I feel really bad about asking to be paid for this, but it's incredibly expensive when I look at the time I'm I'm missing from work or just the act of the driving that I'm doing every week to get so-and-so to her doctor's appointments. If I could just help have some help with paying for gas. What we need to make sure, though, people understand is that reimbursing a fiduciary for expenses related to their work, for instance, um, reimbursing somebody for buying uh, healthcare products or paying for a copay or, or gas something. for driving. Right. Reimbursement is a different issue than compensation. We do see family members charge uh, for acting as fiduciaries, and oftentimes when we have a conversation up front about that, we talk about how important it is to be transparent. So you have to keep records of the time you're spending and what you're charging. You have to share those records with the principal, the person who you're acting on behalf of, if that person is still alive. So when we're talking about selecting a fiduciary and we talk about professional fiduciaries, People should remember that you can have a family member, but you may still pay a fee for that service as well. Certainly with having a professional fiduciary, you will pay a fee for those services. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. I will say that when I'm advising a family member about whether they could or should take a fee, I almost invariably urge them to take a fee. They need to appreciate that, that there are some some things they could do to make their work easier. And if they're charging a fee, it becomes more apparent that it's possible to hire other people to do some of the work at a lower cost than if you do it yourself. And uh, and just saying, I'm not going to charge anything and I'll do all the work myself is kind of counterproductive. There is one variation on that, though, one exception to that. And that is if the family member is the primary beneficiary or one of a very small number of beneficiaries, they need to appreciate that when they charge a fee, they're going to be taxed on that income. When they receive an inheritance, they are not going to be taxed. So if you were the only beneficiary and you decided you wanted to keep records and charge a fee, you would be charging, you would be turning tax-free receipts into taxable income. Otherwise, though, I'm a big fan of family members keeping track of their time 
and charging as may be appropriate. And sometimes when we talk to family members on the front end, I'll encourage them to go ahead and chart their time, track their time, and think about it in the next 60 days. Because sometimes it takes a little while to understand how much time and responsibility that it is to be a fiduciary. And it's not until somebody really gets into the thick of it that they understand what a commitment it is. That's often where the first part of our conversation about fiduciaries and professional fiduciaries starts. And Robert, you used to be the public fiduciary here in Pima County. And I want to make sure that everybody listening understands we're talking about private fiduciaries, not the public fiduciary. So the the words, uh, the modifiers for fiduciary are innumerable. There's the public fiduciary, there are private fiduciaries, there are professional fiduciaries, there are I guess you would say non-professional, not unprofessional, or not necessarily unprofessional fiduciaries. The public fiduciary in Arizona, and it's a unique position to Arizona, is a a public uh, servant. It's a, a county office uh, who, that acts as guardian, conservator, and personal representative when there's no family available or the family is disqualified for some reason. And you're right, I did that for five years. 40 years ago. Oh my gosh, it's a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and that's how I learned how to do what we do at Fleming and Curdy and have been trying to put it to good use ever since. But that role is really limited to a subset of the kinds of cases. Do you have to be licensed to be a professional fiduciary, Robert? You do in Arizona and in a handful of other states. And to be clear, in Arizona, uh, the way you become a professional fiduciary is by charging a fee. So you don't have to be licensed if you're uh, if you've agreed to never charge a fee. But um, why would somebody do that for a business if they weren't going to charge a fee? So Who licenses you, Robert? The Arizona Supreme Court run, runs the licensure program, and uh, it involves taking a test uh, and and. Uh, doing minimum uh, continuing education, meeting continuing education requirements every year, and posting a very small bond. That bond does not make a state's whole if you do something wrong, but just covers the cost of investigating you if the Supreme Court has to has to chase you to earth. Um, and that program has been in place for, oh gosh, about 20 years now, quite a while. Arizona was actually the first state in the nation to have a a uh, fiduciary licensure program. It started as a fiduciary certification program. Can you be a licensed fiduciary in Arizona, Robert, if you're not an attorney? You can, and a reasonably large portion of the fiduciary community is not attorneys. People come to this area um, from a, a variety of places. Some of them come from social work backgrounds. Maybe they have MSWs. Maybe they've worked as discharge planners at, at healthcare institutions. Uh, maybe they have accounting background and they want to manage money uh, and handle the financial sides of things. Uh, in fact, a minority of professional fiduciaries are attorneys in Arizona. So, Robert, if you're acting as a fiduciary on behalf of Fleming and Curdy, perhaps, is that a scenario where the business would be licensed? Uh, typically, when there are several fiduciaries in an office, the office itself is licensed, yes. So, Robert, when we're talking about professional fiduciaries, might we be talking about a financial institution, for instance? Financial institutions can act as trustee. They can act as other fiduciaries too, but they seldom do. When they act as trustee, 
they uh, they don't have to go through the professional licensure program that that other professional fiduciaries do. Uh, and traditionally, it was banks that did most of the trust work and a fair amount of the court conservatorship work. But that that uh, has sort of changed in the last 20 or 30 years, partly because the banks have focused on only very large estates. So several of the banks in Tucson, for instance, or trust companies, say that they don't want to manage your trust unless it's worth more than two to five million dollars. And there are not very many people who have that kind of money to, to manage. Well, it sounds like when we're talking about professional fiduciaries, we're really talking about a very broad group of individuals as well as institutions that may act. Um, I guess my final question as we were talking about professional fiduciaries that I thought about was, how do you get to know whether or not you want to nominate a professional fiduciary in your estate planning documents? And when you're asking that question, do you have to nominate a professional fiduciary to every single role related to your estate plan, like your healthcare agent and your trustee and your personal representative? If you're nominating family members, pretty typically you might break up the roles. You might name your daughter the, the, the uh, doctor to be your healthcare agent and your son the banker to be the financial agent. Although I will say that at least one of my clients switched that and said, oh, no, I, I think I want my, my daughter, the, the doctor, to handle the finances because she'll have to ask her brother for help, and at least they'll talk to each other that way, however you come to the decision. But if you're using a professional fiduciary, you're probably going to name the same professional fiduciary in all of the roles. And how do you choose one? Oh, what a good question, because uh, the only real way to, to be completely comfortable about it would be to interview three or four of them and most of our clients won't do that, though we urge them to. We give them the names and contact information for several of the firms out there, both lawyer and non-lawyer. Uh, very few of them are prepared to spend the time to do that due diligence. I also send people off with a list of questions to ask because I think one of the hardest things to do when you're making a decision about selecting a fiduciary is to know what you don't know and know what kinds of questions are important to ask. One thing I'm going to say, Robert, at the beginning of our podcast today, I told you that I thought we'd get back to the really important question, which is, how much does this cost? And I know that that will depend on the circumstances in every case, but generally speaking, can you talk for a moment about expenses and fees when it comes to using a professional fiduciary? You know, your, your idea of giving clients a list of questions to ask their professional fiduciary, their prospective fiduciary, uh, that's a great idea. And this should be the number one question. How much is it going to cost? You're right that it's hard to predict. Uh, and any, uh, any honest potential fiduciary is going to be a little bit cagey about the answer because we don't know what your estate's going to look like at the time that you become incapacitated or after your death. We don't know how much work there's going to be involved. But we ought to be able to give you some general ideas. Some professional fiduciaries in this community charge on a percentage basis, a percentage of the assets that they are managing. Some professional fiduciaries do not manage assets at all and only do healthcare and placement kinds of decisions. Some, probably most professional fiduciaries do both roles and charge on an hourly basis. 
and they should be able to tell you what their current hourly rates are for the various people in their office. And so they can give you some idea of how much it's going to cost and probably be pretty accurate. They're just going to need to reserve the possibility that your circumstances might be horrific at the time that they have to step in and act. I, I will say on the subject of hourly fees, if you're comparing people, don't focus completely on their hourly fee. Uh, if I charge twice as much as you do as an hourly fee, but I am more than twice as efficient, uh, my fee, my total fee is going to be smaller. So uh, get some sense of what the real fee will be rather than just the hourly rate. That's not that is an important element, but it is not the only important element. And the fee schedule for Fleming and Curdy is on our website. And I find that to be an incredibly important thing that we direct our clients to. And I think that the question about how much does this cost is one of the most important questions and one that unfortunately people are really concerned about asking. Um, maybe we can talk about that some more later, Robert, because I, I think that is something that everybody has a right to know about and is something that is very reasonable to ask upfront. In fact, I think that that's what we're going to talk about in our next podcast episode is Fleming and Curdy acting as fiduciary. We're going to try to demystify it a little bit, how we do it, how we're set up, how much we charge, and give you some sense of what we're all about in the fiduciary world. With that teaser, gosh, I can hardly wait to hear that myself. Uh, let's let's uh, shut off today. This is Robert Fleming and Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and we've been talking about fiduciaries on elder law issues. We hope you will join us next time for the further discussion about Fleming and Curdy PLC as fiduciary. Talk to you then. <laughs>